now we're going to study the Bible, okay? So open up your Bibles. If you've got a Bible, uh, open it up. If you don't have a Bible, we've put some black Bibles under the chair, so you can grab one of those and turn to page 807 in the black Bibles, but it's Matthew 1. So if you're not in the black Bible, page number doesn't matter. Um, It's Matthew chapter 1. And just so you can track where we are week after week, we highlight the theme of the week, right? So what is it this week? It's it's love. Very good. Um, and we've talked about this before. We've got other resources to help you in your practice of Advent. Number one, what does Advent mean? Advent means the arrival of an important person or event. So when historic Christians use this term, they're really talking about the arrival of Jesus, the most important person, the most important event in human history. And so we're talking about the arrival of Jesus. Theologically, sometimes that's called the incarnation, right? That God became flesh and dwelt among us, as John one says. So to help our minds and our hearts settle in on Advent over the next few weeks, we're doing something that all kinds of different denominations do. So the meaning of Advent is the arrival of Jesus. The practice of Advent looks like a million things, right? You know, you got German people hiding pickles and trees. Do y'all do that in, in Germany? I don't know. That's what American Germans do. So you got all kinds of weird <laughs> traditions. Apparently they don't actually do that in Germany. Um, and so all kinds of traditions, right? And none of these traditions in the Bible, what it is, is it's human beings in different cultures and different places just saying, hey, how can we celebrate Jesus, right? And we come up with all kinds of silly things and silly ways to do that. For us, when we practice Advent, we're just saying, let's slow down for four weeks before Christmas and think about, pray about, meditate on the incarnation of Jesus, on the Advent of Jesus in our lives. So we divide up the weeks with hope, love, joy, and peace so that we can do that. We've got an Advent devotional for you that's got scripture readings. It's got coloring pages for those of you that are audiovisual and you're a learning style. We've got some hymns and some poetry. We've also included some, some uh, what do you call it, excerpts, quotes from this book, Gentle and Lowly. We said before someone donated a bunch of copies of Gentle and Lowly. So if you want a copy of the book, Gentle and Lowly, we encourage you to read it. Uh, We're kind of following the themes of this book as well. And the big thesis of this book is Jesus is coming to you, so run to Jesus. Don't wait to get your life cleaned up. Don't wait until everything's perfect. Run to Jesus. And that's what this book is about. I think it'll really encourage you in your faith. Um, So I encourage you to grab a copy of that. We're going to be quoting and talking about it a lot as we move through this series. So love this week, we're calling the sermon Love in Action. Love in Action. And we have to start before we study love with how do we misunderstand love? And I think the two main misunderstandings of love in our culture are, number one, that love is attraction. So we think of love in our culture in hypersexualized terms, that love is lust or attraction, and that's not what love is biblically. Now, there's a place for that within the biblical parameters of marital love, and we talked about that in our First Corinthians series. So, you know, you can go back and listen to those sermons. But that's not really what love is. Love is taking action for the good of another person. Love is a verb, right? The second misunderstanding of love is that it's liking something. So we say, I love barbecue. And I'm well-intentioned when I say that. You'll hear me say that. I love barbecue, right? But really what I'm saying is I like it a lot. That's what I'm saying, right? So again, Biblically, love is actions taking for the, taken for the good of another, and we see that most clearly in the life of Jesus. So one of the most explicit texts about this is in 1 John 4. 1 John 4 says, this is what love is. It's what God did for us in Jesus, right? But we're going to see it lived out in the Gospels. 
So, so we see kind of the theological explicit statement of God loves us by sending Jesus for us and he died for us and he lived for us and he rose from the dead for us, right? So we've got these explanatory statements, 1 John 4, all over the New Testament. But in the gospels, we see it lived out in his actions as well. Love takes action on our behalf. In ethics class, we learned about this with a case study of a little village in France named Les Chambon. Now, Les Chambon was a village that helped to shuttle refugees that were Jewish that were being attacked and hunted and killed by the Nazis and getting them to safety. And so you've got really three different views of love or non-love in this case study. You've got Nazis trying to destroy and kill the Jews. Is that love? No. You've got these French Christians risking their lives to protect to feed, to shelter, and to get these Jewish refugees to safety. Is that love? Yes, biblically that's love. What was fascinating when we studied this case study was there was a third reaction that we discovered. And that was the place where the Jews finally arrived to safety was in another country, right? Because France had been occupied by the Nazis, so they're trying to get the Jews out of France. And so what happened was then they got them to Switzerland, and this isn't against Switzerland, but this was just the reality of how the story unfolded in history and in time. The Swiss just tolerated the Jews. They were the neutral space. It was a place of passivity. Is that love? No, it's really not. What we saw was that the French Christians, sometimes called Huguenots, the French Christians were sacrificing because they really believed that Jesus had sacrificed for them they were making sacrifices to care for and to shelter these Jews that were on the run. That's a picture of love. Again, an ethics case study in the book, Gentle and Lowly. Again, get your free copy in the back. Dane Ortland writes this in chapter two. What we see Jesus claim with his words in Matthew eleven twenty nine that his heart is gentle and lowly for us, right? What we see Jesus claim with his words, we see him prove with his actions. Time and again in all four Gospels. What he is, he does. More than anyone in history, what Jesus does agrees with what he says. More than anybody else. We're struggling to conform our actions to what we say we believe. Jesus did it perfectly every time. What he is, he does. He cannot act any other way. His life proves his heart. I love this quote. I love this idea. Jesus is the living embodiment of what love truly is. So now with that as background, let's, let's read our text, birth narratives again. Last week we were in Luke. This week it'll be in Matthew. Matthew 1, verses 18 through 25. Starting in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. 
Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is God's word. We read it, we study it, because we believe that Jesus is speaking to us through these words, that the The Bible speaks with the authority and relevance of Jesus himself. We also believe that Jesus sent his spirit. The Holy Spirit is here with us, but we want to pray and ask him to really be present in such a way that we would hear and receive the word, that we would pay attention, that we would obey and conform uh, ourselves to what he has to say. So let me pray. God, we ask that your spirit would teach us, that your spirit would fill our hearts so that we would be listeners. We would be learners and practitioners of this love that you have for us in Jesus. We thank you for this good news of a God who came to save us, and we pray now that you'd help us to believe it and walk in it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we have a pretty simple outline. It's kind of a a duality here, both sides of the good news of Jesus's love for us. As I said, the big idea is that love takes action. First uh, John 4 is explicit. It says the action specifically is, is through Jesus. Like that's how we see the manifestation of God's love for us is through the actions, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. And so we can look back on the birth narrative even and see this, that love is taking action in, in two big ways. Historically, theologians like to talk about it as um, transcendence and imminence, right? That's the bigness of God. He loves us because he's big and the closeness of God. He loves us because he's close, right? And so we're always wrestling with this in the life of Jesus. Another theological way to think about this is that that Jesus is is God manifesting his love to us. And and Jesus is 100% God and 100% man. He shows us who God really is. He's God's presence among us. He also is the one that shows us what it means to really be human, And so we see this beautiful picture, the the both sides of Jesus and his work for us, how love uh, comes out in our real life. So I'm going to use these two terms for the outline. Love takes action against our biggest problem. We've got kind of imminent close problems, but we've got a a big problem we've got to deal with, right? It's called sin. Spoiler alert. Love takes action against our biggest problem. The second part of the outline is love takes action in our presence that closeness. He's he's with us, right? So love takes action against our biggest problem, and love takes action in our presence, in God's closeness with us. So first of all, love takes action against our biggest problem. We'll see this fleshed out in verses 18 through 21. Love takes action against our biggest problem, and our biggest problem is sin. It's explicitly said in verse 21, he came to save us from our sins. When you go back and read the cross-reference I keep mentioning in 1 John, little letter at the end of the Bible, 1 John chapter 4, it says this as well, that there's this explicit action that God took for us in Jesus, that Jesus is our propitiation. Sometimes it said atonement. Propitiation is an interesting word. It, it has this concept of a sacrifice wherewith God is made happy with us. So, so what does that mean? That means a sacrifice needs to take place to take care of our sins, but through that sacrifice, now God is delighted in you. God likes you and loves you. He, he's delighted in you. He's made himself happy with the sacrifice that he's made through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So this is our biggest problem. Now, that doesn't mean we don't have other problems, right? 
Like we are a room full of problems. I'm a somewhat empathetic person, although I think in my old age, I'm, I'm getting more introverted and less empathetic, right? Maybe I'm becoming a grumpy old man. I don't know. Um, maybe it's just years of ministry. But there's just like, you, you feel this burden, right? We all have, pro- like we just all are carrying a limp. We've all got a, pro- like, like we all have different stuff we carry into this room, uh, significant problems. And so what I don't want you to hear is that knowing that there's a biggest problem means that your other immediate problems don't matter. Those problems matter. I just want you to hear that, okay? I'm gonna be pressing you to there's a more important problem. There's a bigger problem, a more ultimate problem, and that is sin. That is your own heart turning from God and being satisfied in other things. And the solution to that is Jesus. But that doesn't mean your immediate problems don't matter. Let's look at this unfolding in the story in the life of Joseph and Mary and the birth of Jesus. Verse 18, it says, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. This is how it unfolded. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, okay, stop there, mid-sentence, betrothed. What does that mean? Okay, that's a different category for us. We don't have betrothal. Uh, We joke about it, right? You know, your kids like each other in Sunday school, and you're like, let's betroth our children together. We don't really do that, though, in our society. What that is, is it's legally binding. It's, It's basically more than our engagement and less than our marriage. Okay, so let me define how that works. It's legally binding. It's like a real marriage in their society in the first century in that the only way to get out of it was a divorce. But they hadn't yet been physically together, okay? They hadn't practiced marital intimacy, right? I'm trying to use euphemisms here. So no marital intimacy, no physical bonding yet in this marriage, yet they were married, okay? So again, it's just like third category we don't really have in our society. And so they were betrothed. It says before they came together, she was found to be with child, from the Holy Spirit. So what does that mean? She's pregnant. She's going to have a baby. Now, you may be thinking, we're smart modern people. They probably think babies come from the stork. They're probably all confused. We know where babies come from, right? No. Ancient people are just as smart as us, and I will say they're actually smarter than us, okay? Ancient people knew how life worked. They were more intimately acquainted with animal husbandry and physical things Uh, death and life, they knew more about that on an everyday basis than we do. We we kind of push that out on experts, right? So maybe a couple of your doctors, you kind of know how things work, but the rest of us, we just have iPhones and Google and we don't really know how life works, right? We think we're smart modern people, but really ancient people understood this stuff. So Joseph knew exactly what that meant, right? He knew if his wife was pregnant or his betrothal, If she was pregnant, that meant she'd been with somebody in his mind because that's how it works, right? So again, another thing that I want to say about this is don't push off faith and belief in God as some ancient superstitious thing. It was just as hard for Joseph as it is for you and me. They struggled to believe these things and we struggle to believe these things, right? So don't put yourself in some special category. We all struggle to believe that God is involved in this broken universe, And so what happens? Verse 19, her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. So again, this brings in even more questions, right? Cultural distance. What does that mean? Just man. We don't even have a concept for that, right? So biblically, it would be unjust that you would cheat on your spouse. So the just thing to do would be to break it off, right? Again, that's confusing for us. We struggle with that. My wife was asking me about the like, he didn't want to put her to shame, but he wanted to divorce her. Like, how do those two things go together? And I was like, well, 
I think in his mind, there was no concept of staying with her, right? Like the just, righteous, biblical thing to do would be to separate because she had, had betrayed him, right? And yet he still was showing grace and not wanting to do it in a public, humiliating way. Um, so again, there's so much here culturally that's distant for us because our culture has such different values that this is confusing. If you want to talk more about this, I'd love to talk to you more about this, but I don't think it's the main point of the passage, so I don't want to belabor the point, right? But I just think it's interesting to see that he's just, he's wanting to do kind of like the righteous thing, the biblical thing here, but you also see this heart of like, I don't want to, I don't want to embarrass her any more than she needs to be. I, I can't move forward, but I also don't want to shame her, so he's trying to do it quietly. Verse 20, but as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. So again, he's like us. He just sees the world as it is. He's like us. He has this pressure constantly on him from his daily living to think that all there is is what I can see, taste, touch, and smell. That's the same world we live in. And there's got to be this message breaking in from the outside that says, hey, there's more. You don't know the whole story, Joseph. So we have to hear that message as well. Supernatural message from God saying there's more to the story. Something supernatural is happening here. This is the Holy Spirit moving in this normal physical world that we understand at one level, and yet we don't understand because the Holy Spirit's breaking in and, and turning everything upside down. And guess what? You might be thinking, yeah, that'd be great if I got a vision from an angel. If I got a special message from God, hey, you've got one. It's called the Bible. So you can leave it on the shelf and say, God's never spoken to me. Or you can say, the God of the universe has spoken to me. And I'm going to pay attention to what he says. And so we're, we're inviting you into this story with us. Man, we want to listen. Man, we've got, we've got supernatural messages from God. Let's listen and pay attention to what he has to say. So Joseph, just like you and me, had to be like knocked on the head like, hey, there's more. I have a message for you, Joseph. He's saying, hey, the Holy Spirit is up to something. And, and look at how he addresses Joseph. The angel's like, hey, Joseph, son of David. Why does he say that? That wasn't Joseph's last name, okay? His last name in that culture would have been whatever his dad's name was, right? I don't remember at this point, you know, Joseph Bar Frank or whatever it was. Um, but he's in a long line of descendants from King David. So that would have been his great, 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 great grandpa right? What is he saying? He's saying here, you're a part of this line of people that are going to be a part of the fulfillment of the promises that God has made. So God made big promises through Abraham. You're going to have a tribe that's going to save the world. And those promises were narrowed in that tribe down to King David. He made these other promises to King David in the books of Samuel. He said, you're going to have a descendant, King David, that's going to reign forever. And we know now with the whole story that king is Jesus. Jesus is the son of David, the ultimate king who rules and reigns in heaven through his resurrection, conquering sin and death for us. So all that, there's like a hyperlink here, right? When, when he says, son of David, he's referring to all these promises that have gone before. Son of David, don't fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. I love the directness here. It's like, hey, this is what you're going to do. 
Sometimes we need God to speak in our life that way, right? Because again, we, we, we're regular people. Joseph's a regular person. Joseph was probably not feeling it yet. But God's like, this is what you're going to do. You're going you're gonna to take in Mary. You're going to adopt this boy. You're going to name this boy. And this is how things are going to go. And that's kind of what obedience looks like a lot of times in our life. Just like, just trust me. God says, just trust me. I, I'm up to something bigger than you understand right now. And so this is what he does. And he says, she'll bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Again, that's the big idea. He's come to save us from our sins. So we love to celebrate little baby Jesus. We love to celebrate his closeness. There are these beautiful stories we'll look at later in Luke. He appears to shepherds. He's born in a trough. There's all kinds of closeness and beauty in the incarnation. The humility that the God of the universe would humble himself to be born in a barn. I mean, it's just mind-blowing. But let us not forget the big problem that he came to conquer sin and death. You'll name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That's what the name Jesus means. Uh, it's from the Hebrew Yeshua, Yahweh saves. Different people pronounce this the, the covenant name of God, Yahweh. He appears to Moses. He's like, I am that I am. That, that word, can some people, people think it's pronounced Yahweh or Jehovah. There's disagreement about how to pronounce it. But it's this personal covenant name of a God who saves that he reveals in the Old Testament. Most English translations, when you read your Old Testament, it's all capitals. And that's how we kind of know it's that special name of God. And so all capitals, L-O-R-D, is when we know it's referring to this name. Again, Yahweh, Jehovah, we're not sure exactly how to pronounce it. I think Yahweh is a little closer to how it's actually pronounced. So you have all these kind of hyphenated names uh, in Hebrew. Most of them, if it starts with a J-E or a J-A, it's often some kind of reference to this God, Yahweh. And so Yeshua is Yahweh saves. What's interesting to note too, is this is like a really boring everyday name. Uh, When I was in high school many years ago, every third person was named Mike, okay? And so it's like the name Mike in our culture or Michael. It's just a really, really common name. And we don't catch it because of translation, right? So in the Old Testament, it'd be Joshua. So we read our Old Testament, we got this name Joshua, very common name. The New Testament, Yeshua, the New Testament's written in Greek, so it gets translated into Greek. So when you read the Greek New Testament, it's Jesus. But then that gets translated like three more times, and now we got Jesus, right? Which is okay. There, there's this whole weird cultic practice of God can't hear you unless you pronounce things the way he likes. It, it, it's okay. Like he, he understands all of our different languages, okay? He understands all our different languages. We speak English, and English is this weird mix of these 10 languages that went before. So we say Jesus, But just know, it was a super common name, Joshua. Just a normal name. But what does it mean? It means he came to solve our biggest problem. Love is shown most clearly. Again, 1 John 4 states this explicitly. How do we see that God loves us? We see that God loves us because he sent Jesus to save us. And our biggest problem is we're totally separated from God because of our own sin. Right? The biblical story is that we were in perfect communion with God. We were created in perfect fellowship with him. And yet we turned. And the Bible says mystically, somehow we were like with Adam and Eve in that. We like to think like, if I was there, I would have obeyed perfectly. No, no, you wouldn't. We were with Adam and Eve. We were like with them in this. And we were like, yep, we don't want you, God. 
We want to do our own thing. We've replayed that in our own lives a million times. I don't want you, God. I just want your stuff. And we turned from him. And ever since then, there's been this rescue mission building and building and building, and now it's coming to fruition in the, in the birth of Jesus. God with us. Emmanuel. I'm getting ahead to the next point, though. So he came to save his people from their sins. There's some great Old Testament references that say repeatedly that Yahweh is the only one that can save people. Yahweh is the only one that can save people. Capital L-O-R-D in the Old Testament translations. Yahweh, Jehovah, is the only one that can save people. Jonah 2, 9, salvation's from the Lord. Psalm 3, 8, salvation's from the Lord. Isaiah 43, 11. Isaiah 45, 17. Where does salvation come from? Who's gonna save us? Where does ultimate rescue come from? It comes from the Lord. It comes from Yahweh. Who is Jesus? Jesus is Yahweh saving us. What does that mean? Jesus is the God of the Old Testament. We believe that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So again, cultic teaching is like, no, there's this difference and this created being and there's all kinds of confusion there. No, Jesus is Yahweh. We need to know that. We have confidence when we read the Old Testament. It's about Jesus, even though his strange English name is not said yet. It's about him. Psalm 130 shows this thing that that is lived out repeatedly in the Psalms. It's like, how do we live the experience of crying out to a God that says your ultimate problem is your sin? But we always have this other presenting symptom. It's kind of like when you go into the doctor, you're like, doctor, my, my throat tickles. And he's like, well, you have this other problem, right? It's a virus or a bacterial infection. That's your ultimate problem. We always come in with a presenting so we come to God like, God, I, my friends have betrayed me. He's like, yeah, let's, we'll deal with that. But really your, your problem is sin. And I sent Jesus to die on the cross for your sins. Or we come in and we're like, God, I'm broke. Like that is a problem. <laughs> but really you're broke spiritually. And you need Jesus to fill your spiritual bank account with his righteousness. Or we come to him like, I'm just, I have these relational problems. Everything's messed up in my family. Yeah, that is That is an issue, but you're separated relationally from God, and that's the foundation. So I want you to see that the Bible is really clear that our presenting problems are real problems and they matter. In the next point, we'll see Jesus always cares about those presenting problems. You can always run to him with your presenting problems, but know there's a bigger problem. I just don't want you to miss that. Bigger problem is you and I are separated from God because of our sin, and only Jesus dying on the cross for our sins, rising from the dead, proving that he defeated sin, can save us from that. How do we attain that? We just ask. All you have to do is ask. Again, different church traditions do that in different ways, asking more publicly, less publicly. All you have to do is ask. And I think it's good to then publicly identify with Jesus through baptism, to begin worshiping with God's people. Because here's the thing, right now in your seat, you can just say, Jesus, I'm a sinner. I see that I'm separated from you. I've done my own thing. Will you forgive me? He will. Just ask him right now. He will save you. But what that means in spiritual terms is you are now a spiritual new baby. As John 3 says, you've been born again if you've asked Jesus to save you, but you're a baby and you need a family, right? So you can privately in the, in the privacy of your own room at night or right here, right now, silently say, Jesus, save me and he will save you. And you are born again and you belong to Jesus but just like a baby can't just like live out on the street, the baby needs a family, right? That's what the church is about. Are we a broken family? Yes, we are a broken family. But, but you need a family. You need, to, you need to grow with other Christians. And so applicationally, 
We want to move through this process of bringing our problems, our presenting problems to God, but recognizing my ultimate problem is I need salvation. I need a God who's come in love to tackle my biggest problem. I grabbed a picture here of somebody in a pit because this is how the Psalms are always talking about. The Psalms are always talking about like this guy's in a pit, right? He's in a hole. He's falling off a cliff. He's drowning in the water. He's in the depths. He's in the miry clay. One of my favorite old U2 songs from the, from the 80s is, is called 40. It's from Psalm 40. I'm in the miry clay and I'm crying out to you, God. Again and again, this is, this is the posture of the psalmist, right? The psalmists show us how to bring our presenting problems to God, but then acknowledge, but God, you're you're the real issue. My separation from you is the real issue, right? So I encourage you to go to the Psalms with your problems. Say, God, I'm in a pit. That picture was crazy. This dude had fallen into a manure pit. Yeah. So some of you, you feel that way right now, right? With whatever the financial problem that you're facing, or it might be cancer, or it might be a relational difficulty. You're like, man, I've, I'm in this manure pit. <laughs> like, I feel like I'm in the depths. And again, I just want you to hear, you can take that to God. That's the theme of this book, Gentle and Lowly. That's why we're giving it out is like, Jesus is running to you. Don't, don't feel like you got to clean it all off before you come to Jesus. No, Jesus came because you can't get yourself out of the pit. That's why Jesus came. And so just recognize we always bring our presenting problems to him. But as we work through this process of God, help me, I'm in the depths. Help me get out of the situation. Help me, I've been betrayed. We always see the psalmist moving to this posture of, yet I will praise you because you're the ultimate solution. Restoration with God is what I really need. And so we want to move through that process of being honest about our immediate problem, the pit we're in, but recognizing that the real pit is our separation from God. So number one, have you asked him? Have you said, I, I need you to forgive me? You can do business with God right now. N- number two, have you then joined a community with others that trust Jesus as the solution to their sins. And we beat this drum all the time. Part of that community is gathering in worship. It's a process. We talk about this historic term, the means of grace. It just means that God's given us these water spigots and we're thirsty. And so we come to to drink from the spigot of biblical preaching. Like, I just need to hear more of who Jesus is and what he's done. I need these messages from God, right? And and biblical worship where we praise Jesus together. Just the act of, of singing and or shouting if you can't do music, right? Of of just crying out to God, God, you're great. God, you're awesome. God, you have saved me. Just singing together in unison. unison, It begins to to shape our hearts and conform us more and more to Jesus, coming to the communion table, identifying with Jesus through baptism, fellowshipping with other Christians, uh, greeting one another, encouraging one another, praying for one another. We talk about these things all the time. These are just the basic steps of, of joining the family of God and saying, yeah, I need Jesus and I need Jesus every day, right? If you just ask him to save you, you're saved and nothing can snatch you out of his hand. But every single one of us as, as followers of Christ need to keep coming back to him every day. We don't lose our salvation and need to come to back, back to him in that sense of like, oh, I've lost it, now I need it again. No, we come back to him because he's our only hope. He's our breath, he's our water, he's our support, he's our sustenance. So I encourage you to not only come to him for salvation, but continue to walk with him in worship. This is New Year's resolution time, right? We're heading towards January. It's a great time to get more serious about spiritual goals. Actually, like reading the Bible this year and set smart goals, right? Set achievable goals. If you hate to read, don't say I'm going to read 10 chapters every day. Like, you're not going to do that, okay? 
maybe listen to the Bible on audio, maybe memorize a few scriptures that are helpful for you, but set some reasonable goals of beginning to walk with Jesus and learning scripture and praying and talking to him and, and crying to him through your difficulties and joining in a group of fellowshipping with other Christians. Set some reasonable goals to walk with Jesus, recognizing that the love of God is manifest in this, that Jesus took action against your biggest problem, my biggest problem, that's our own sin and separation from God. Second point is this, love takes action in our presence. So bigness of God, he takes care of our sins. Closeness of God, he cares. He's with us. Again, and this is a theme that is hammered again and again in gentle and lowly. Jesus runs after you in your brokenness and in your pain. We see this again He's going to name him Jesus. Jesus is going to save them from their sins. And then verses 22 and following, we're going to see how this works out in Jesus's life. So verses 23 is really verses 22 through 25. Love takes action in our presence. Love takes action in our presence. Verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. What prophet? It's Isaiah. You can see that usually in the footnotes of your Bible. The prophet Isaiah said in verse 23, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Love takes action in God's presence among us, his closeness to us, his eminence. Verse 24, when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife. He knew her not until she had given birth to a son. Um, Little side thing. Catholic friends would say perpetual virgin. We don't believe that's true biblically. There's a lot of reason for that. Again, we could talk about that offline. It's not the main point here. He took his wife. He knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. In Jewish tradition, first century, he had just adopted this boy as his own. He obeyed the message from God. He's like, all right, I'm going to do what God told me to do. I'm going to adopt this boy. I'm going to name him. I'm going to name him Jesus. But wait, it's a fulfillment of the prophecy to Isaiah that his name should be, what was the other name? Emmanuel, right? So how do we put that together? I think it's really a difference between office and name, uh, right? I was talking to my assistant pastor about this the other day, uh, Joey Cologne. His wife called him Joey in front of their four-year-old. And the four-year-old was not happy about that. She's like, mommy, his name is daddy. <laughs> and he was upset, right? Because the four-year-old knows him as daddy and, and Catherine knows him as, as Joey. And we've all experienced that kind of thing, right? We have titles, we have name, we have nicknames. And so I, th- I think that's really, it's just that simple, right? His name is Jesus. He's got this regular boring name, Jesus, that has this huge, big significance. He saves his people from their sins. But when people see Jesus, when they see him living out his life, when they see in the four gospels, everything that Jesus says, how he interacts with people, how he lives out what it means to really be human, what do we see in Jesus? People are going to say, Emmanuel. People are going to say, God is with us. So so if you struggle with the farness of God, you need Jesus. Jesus is how we know that God is with us. We come to him by faith. It's mediated by a spirit. We hear about it in the word. We celebrate it as we sing to him, and as we look at the life of Jesus, they're going to call him Emmanuel, God with us. He is close to us. He cares for us. Great cross-reference I, I talk about all the time, Philippians 2. He left the comforts of heaven. He came into our world. Closer in reference, 
for us, thinking about 9-11, we like to talk about the heroes that ran into the flames to help people run away from the flames. I grabbed a picture of a fireman running up burning stairs. So we see this in the life of emergency workers, right? In the life of soldiers, in the life of teachers, in the life of doctors, in the life of people who say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to run towards the problem and try to help people in that situation. But of course, Jesus is the ultimate picture of this. Jesus is the one who ran into the flames to rescue us. Our, our world is on fire. We have created, through our sin and selfishness, hell on earth. And Jesus said, well, I could, I could stay in heaven where everything's cool, but he gave that up. He loosened his grip on that. The Greek word is kenosis. He emptied himself and became a servant. He ran into the flames. He came after us. Now, there's a beautiful, you know, concrete illustration of that when, when emergency workers or when people through their vocation enter into people's pain and, and suffering. But we can do this just in relational ways as well, right? Um, there's a a therapist and, and rabbi named Edwin Friedman. He wrote a, a famous book that a lot of therapists quote a lot called Generation to Generation. I think I actually had to read some of this when I was studying counseling in seminary. Um, and he talks about in family systems this, this gift of somebody, whenever crisis or chaos comes into this team, being a non-anxious presence, right? And so emergency workers are trained through repetition and, and training to do what needs to be done in an emergency situation, to, to come in to the flames, to the chaos, to the brokenness, and bring grace into that situation. But, but we can do that relationally as well. And so Friedman talks about this in his book, Generation to Generation. So any system, whether it be people you work with or your family, right, uh, can be thrown into to crisis and chaos. Most of us have lived through that to some degree, have suffered through that to some degree, um, and so these, these systems or these families are bound to break down unless there is a non-anxious presence in the system. So that's the fascinating thing. This guy's not a Christian, but he's just discovered something about how God has made the world. These systems tend to survive. These families tend to survive when there's one member that can live out this non-anxious presence. And so this author, who's summarizing Friedman's work here, says there are two important aspects of this concept of the non-anxious presence. First, the person who provides non-anxious presence must be present in the situation. We're getting really obvious here, right? But this is helpful to remember, right? Because sometimes you and I have learned these coping coping mechanisms from our own broken families where we're like, I know how I can be a non-anxious presence. I can leave, right? He's like, that that doesn't work. Maybe you're non-anxious, but you're not present. You've left the situation. So you've got to stay present in the situation. Secondly, the person must be non-anxious, meaning he remains calm even when everyone else around is in panic. Everybody else is losing their mind. You're not losing your mind, right? You're non-anxious. And he clarifies, this doesn't mean that the person is uninvolved or unemotional. His presence in the situation precludes that. Uh, that's another important thing, right? So I, I learned a couple of coping mechanisms growing up. One was leave. The other was just turn off. Become a zombie. Be not emotionally present. Neither one of those count. 
I've had, I've had to relearn a lot. And I've relearned it by, by practicing loving family, loving other believers in the family of God, reading the scriptures, being reminded of who Jesus is and he's, what he's done for me, stumbling, making mistakes, having to confess, be forgiven, forgive. We can learn through spiritual practices how to be a non-anxious presence. So just like we see that in the, in the lives of emergency workers, they drill and they train, Christians should be doing that too, right? Again, this, is, this guy's not a Christian, but he's discovered something about how the world is made. Amid panic and chaos, the non-anxious presence can be calm, assess the situation holistically, offer perspectives and solutions that are effective and helpful. R- really what we're saying is we're just, we're just following Jesus, like, Jesus came for me. Jesus knew everything was falling apart and the world was on fire and he came anyway. And he showed me how to live and he showed me what love is. He's close to me. He's close to us. We see this lived out in the life of Jesus. That's a really beautiful thing about the scriptures. Great book that I've loved. It's called Love Walked Among Us by Paul Miller. He just, he just skims through all of the gospels and he shows the behaviors of love that Jesus lives out. So he kind of puts flesh on compassion and empathy and love and how we listen to people and see people and serve people. And he shows how Jesus lives that out for us. So we want to be careful and not leave behind our ultimate problem of sin. Jesus came to die on the cross for our sins. You got to do business with God. That's a foundational issue that we've got to work out. But we also don't want to leave the whole like, how do we live in close proximity with people How do we cry with each other and serve one another and help one another and understand one another and pay attention to one another? And we've got both of that in Jesus. He dealt with our ultimate spiritual problem of sin, and he's also God's presence among us. He shows us what compassion actually looks like. And so we want to continue to bind these things together in our lives to be a church that lives this out in the same way that Jesus lived this out for us. John 15, 13, greater love has no, love has no one than this. Someone lay down his life for his friends. That's the ultimate sacrifice, right? Jesus died for us. But don't miss that he died daily. That as we practice being a non-anxious presence, as we serve one another, as we practice the biblical term of patience, which is long-suffering, <laughs> so we bear with one another in love, we're, we're, we're dying daily in a sense. And so... We can go back to 1 John 4 that says, this is how God showed his love. God showed his love by sending his son, Jesus. And in 1 John 4, what it says is, and so what do we do? We should love each other. Because Jesus loved us, we should love each other. Because love took action in our lives through the God of the universe entering into our world, we should enter into each other's world. We should love each other in the same way that God loved us. I'll, I'll end with a quote again from Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland, trying to push y'all to buy, not buy the book, take the book, it's free. Um, so we've got copies of the book at the back. This is from chapter two. We're just gonna read a quote each week in the next few weeks. He's talking about the love of Jesus expressed through compassion. Compassion is a beautiful idiomatic word in Greek that means literally your gut's being moved to somebody. So here's this quote. He says, Compassion comes in waves over and over again in Christ's ministry. Compassion drives him to heal the sick, Matthew 14, 14. Compassion drives him to feed the hungry, Matthew 15, 32. Compassion drives him to teach the crowds, 
Mark 6.34. Compassion drives him to wipe away the tears of the bereaved. Luke 7. The Greek word for compassion is the same in all these texts and refers most literally to the bowels or guts of a person. It's an ancient way of referring to what rises up from one's innermost core. This compassion reflects the deepest heart of Christ. The cumulative testimony of the four gospels is that when Jesus Christ sees the fallenness of the world all about him, his deepest impulse, his most natural instinct is to move toward that sin and suffering, not away from it. Love takes action. Love moves towards us. So the call to us as followers of Jesus is to move towards others and their pain and suffering. But, but don't miss, we start with Jesus because we can't get there unless we really see that that's what he's done for us. Run to Jesus, come to Jesus because he's come to you. See the love of a God who has taken action on your behalf. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you that you love us and we see this most clearly in Jesus. We see it in the way that Jesus lived his everyday life and we see it in the ultimate sacrifice he made, dying for us, rising from the dead. Lord, make us more like Jesus. We know that's gonna be painful. That's a dangerous prayer. But will you make us more like Jesus? Will you help us to be conformed to his image? Will you shape us? Help us to see the beauty, the glory of the love that you have for us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.